In a recent appearance on the Ali Bethstucky show, Ken Ham made some noteworthy comments about me, Charles Darwin. He told the world I am the high priest of the evolutionist religion, talked about my racist past, and even implicated me in the promotion of eugenics and abortion. Perhaps most significantly, Mr. Ham suggests that I formulated the theory of evolution with the intention of disproving the existence of God. He wanted to come up with a way of explaining life without God. Today, I confess I find myself in this unique situation where I can tell people what happened with some help. Hello everyone, this is What Your Pastor Didn't Tell You. Today I'm on with Seth Hart. We're gonna be talking about Charles Darwin and the origin of evolution. Obviously, it's me, Charles Darwin. We have Seth Hart, and uh, just how are you doing today, Seth? I'm doing all right, Mr. Darwin. How are you doing? I'm doing great. So, uh, obviously, uh, you know this, but the audience doesn't. So, Ken Ham had a great little conversation with Ali Beth Stuckey, a, a famous little podcaster, and they were talking about the origins of evolution, and I just had to have you on to see what actually happened. Now, I could tell you that, you know, the, the, the truth behind the matter, but I, I forgot. It's been a long time. How, how can you blame me? So... You, an, an expert on the topic, can can help us out here. So, Mr. Mr. Hart, uh, what is your background? Tell us how you know so much about me. Well, one of the closest connections that I have to you is, first off, um, I've been to your grave in Westminster, and oh. uh, they'll be shocked to find that you, you're not occupying anymore, but it's great <laughs> to be on this, uh, this uh, show mm -hmm. with you. Yes, yes. And uh, also, I used to uh, hang around your old stomping grounds in Oxford mm. and studied science and religion there, focusing specifically on uh, biological evolution, its relationship to Christianity, and all the different facets that go into that. And I'm actually now doing a PhD in that as well. Oh. So I, it's pretty close to my heart, mm -hmm. the, your work, along with mm -hmm. its relationship to my faith. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, that makes a lot of sense now. Okay, so I cannot wait for you to tell me about myself. It's a little weird to say, but, you know, it's the 21st century, right? Uh, they didn't have that back then. But anyways, uh, yeah, so tell me, uh, what, was Darwin a Christian? Were you a Christian? Um, well, unfortunately, you were a Christian growing up. At least you mm. were church attending, you maintained a belief in God, and did all the things that a good Victorian era mm. person okay. ought to do, which is, you know, nearly universally Christian, held to the Anglican faith, the Church of England, and you were a studious attender of that. Now, later in your life, unfortunately, due to the death of your daughter, mm. which I hate to remind mm. you of. Yes. But because of that, you began to struggle with the idea of a good God. Mm. And there is a lot of academic debate about the exact nature, because there's some wrestling back and forth within the letters themselves, which I think communicates that your own personal struggles with faith, with belief in God, were actually quite complex. and were never fully and completely settled, not even up until the point of your death. Mm. And but but there are a few things we can say, which is that by the end of your life, you, you sort of transitioned into deism and then finally into a sort of agnosticism, hmm. but entertained deism as well. Deism being the belief that there is a God, but it's a God that doesn't really get his hands dirty with mm -hmm. the world. Okay. But uh, ultimately, you sort of arrest, wrestled with that and arrived at a sort of agnosticism, which is it, that you thought that there were some interesting ideas around mm -hmm. deism, but ultimately you weren't sure that just 
you, you tended not to co comment too much because it was outside where you really felt like your, your expertise was. Yes, yes, that makes makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that it's coming back to me now. But yeah, so let's let's watch uh, the good old Ken Ham and and Alibeth Stucky. Uh, now that we have a little bit of background about my faith, I I I want to I want to hear what they have to say, and I'd like to hear your thoughts. So let's let's go ahead and get into it. So. Some of the very same people who want to discredit entire institutions or even the United States itself by going back to the origin of it and saying, well, these founders were imperfect, they owned slaves, they didn't see, you know, women as having equal rights. And so all of the United States is kind of illegitimate or because it started with colonization. But some of those very same people, they won't do that when it comes to the theory of evolution, when they they don't want to look back at Darwin and think about some of the presuppositions that he had and actually the eugenicist nature and ideology that he pushed. They're not willing to discredit all of this so-called science. Uh, because of where it actually comes from and the imperfection of the person who came up with this theory. But when it comes to things like the United States or Christianity or the church, we have to pick it apart and say, well, these bad things have happened in the name of this, and so we should just do away with all of it. It's very interesting what people pick and choose to look at the origins of. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that's an important point that you that you do bring up there because consider the cancel culture, okay? So somebody in the past made some statement because people can be inconsistent mm -hmm. and, and, you know, have not developed their thinking like they should and so on. But then they, they say, we've got to remove their statues, you've got to rip their name off an auditorium or get their books out of libraries. Wait a minute, Darwin is totally protected. That's, that's right. Why is Darwin totally protected? Because if you if you look at his book, The Descent of Man, mm -hmm. it's one of the most racist books on the planet. What? Right? He he actually teaches <laughs> that the Australian Aboriginals and people from Africa are closer to the apes, they're lower on the mental scale, what? whereas the Caucasians are higher on the mental scale. I mean, it's Stephen Jay Gould, the late Stephen Jay Gould from Harvard University, who was a Marxist evolutionist in 1977, said Darwin's ideas fueled racism. Mm -mm. And there's no doubt about that. What? And Darwin's ideas fueled eugenics. I mean, Margaret Sanger, who founded Planned Parenthood, did it on the basis of Darwin's ideas. She said... Okay, uh, Mr. Hart, please tell me what he's saying is not true. Well, there's actually, believe it or not, some truth in what he's saying. Eugenics was justified on the idea of social Darwinism. Hmm. Now, here's the thing. Darwin himself was never a big promoter of using his ideas for moral purposes. He was a hmm. scientist. This is just, he's trying to just tell us the facts about life and that sort of stuff. Hmm. Now, there were other people like Heckel, like um, Galton, like some of these figures really did promote this as, well, this is the way nature is. Hmm. Therefore, we ought to continue to implement this. This is just basically the march of life. That's not a scientific claim. That's a moral claim. Mm. And there were uh, the funny thing is, is they brought up the ideas of colonialism as well and talked about how Darwinism was used to justify that as well. Correct, but so was the Bible. Mm. They brought up racism and how Darwinism was used to justify that. Correct, but so was the Bible. Black people were thought to be the descendants of Ham, therefore cursed, therefore using it to justify slavery. Some other people said that they weren't descendants of Adam and therefore weren't fully human. So there's many different ways people used to dehumanize black people, hmm. whether it was evolution, whether it was Christianity. And I think we as Christians can rightly say that those were abuses of Christi Christianity and the church rightly resisted that. 
And I think that's a legitimate critique. Hmm. But we cannot do be uh, commit the fallacy of special pleading here. We don't want to allow ourselves the luxury of saying this is an abuse of Christianity, while at the same time not granting the same grace to Darwinism. Because, very obviously, this was an abuse of Darwinism. Hmm. Very rightly, it was. And he brought up Stephen Jay Gould, and Gould talks about, in some of the same works that Ham is citing, about how these were abuses of the science. Not only were they trying to implement an ethic out of science, which scientists will staunchly say, we're not doing ethics. We're not trying to make moral claims or what society should do. We just deal with the facts. But also how often the science itself was butchered and used to fit the facts. Hmm. What Oftentimes this racism, it did, you know, you had some incredibly intelligent Aboriginal people from other cultures. Alfred uh, Russell Wallace noticed this in his explorations, and he's the co-founder of Darwinism. So he ha so he actually pushed back on some of these Darwinian ideas that these uh, people were actually less, hmm. that less intelligent or less advanced, lower on the evolutionary scale. And the co-founder of the theory of natural evolution by natural selection pushed against Darwin, the guy who has equal rights to claim that Darwinism is his view. And so just telling one side of the story and pretending that's what's called normative, that is the real account of what evolution is, and basically saying, look at all these terrible consequences. Well, if we're going to do that, then Christianity's in trouble too. Hmm. And so that's something that Ken Ham doesn't really... Uh, really entertained. He's wanting to show, portray evolution in the worst possible circumstance by saying, look at all the terrible things that people use to justify it for, while letting Christianity off the hook. And I honestly think uh, we should do this for both. We should recognize that this was an abuse of Darwinism in the same way we recognize that using biblical verses or using theology to justify slavery was an abuse of the teachings of Christ. Hmm. Okay, so I'm just trying to understand everything. So are you saying that the book that Ken, Ken Hamside did, that I wrote, was not racist? I would say, so Darwin, just if we're going to take in all Darwin's books, so he taught, he wrote The Descent of Man. Um, the prevailing view at the time, Darwin wasn't able to visit a lot of Aboriginal places. He was able to go to the Galapagos and he saw some. Um, he didn't get as much exposure as Alfred Russell Wallace, who was the co-founder of the theory of natural selection, evolution by natural selection, right? Wallace got much more exposure than Darwin did. He was more of an on-the-field, like a, a field biologist. Uh, Darwin had some of that, but the prevailing ideas of the day were, we've encountered these Aboriginal peoples, and very clearly they're less intelligent, less advanced than us. Hmm. So Darwin adopted those views because that was the prevailing view of the day and continued to be the prevailing view for decades after that, even after his death. I was reading books well into the 20th century that were still propagating this obviously racist and incorrect view hmm. about the intelligence of non-white people. And so, and he, he points this out, that in, into the 1920s, this was still being taught, but there were Christians who were teaching this mm -hmm. as well. So again, we can't just indict evolutionists for this. Everyone was embracing this, what was thought to be a mm -hmm. foregone conclusion. And unfortunately, Darwin did as well. But what I find interesting is is to contrast him with Wallace. Wallace's co-discoverer who said, no, this is not the case. Hmm. This is not the case. And he did this because of the science, because of his investigations, because he was looking at the, uh, the evolution of people by natural selection and realized that we're all pretty much on equal footing. Hmm. And 
Yeah, so you can just as easily make an argument that evolution helped to dethrone racist narratives as you can for saying that it enabled it. And honestly, it just depends on which facts you want to pick. Hmm. Do you prioritize Wallace's account or do you prioritize some of these rare statements by Darwin that he just had adopted because other people were telling him this? Hmm. Yes. Ken Ham in this video picks one because he's got an agenda. And the agenda is make Darwinism look evil. But I can easily tell another story that says the complete opposite. Hmm. And again, so all I'm saying is, is check your narrative, check the story you're telling, and make sure the facts that they're picking aren't cherry-picked. Hmm. Because that's exactly what Ken Ham is doing here. Hmm. Well, it seems like you're going on down pretty hard on him there. Uh, shout out to my friend Wallace. What a chap. Um, <laughs> the, anyways, though, so... Uh, at the, it seems like there's there's certainly an aspect where they're trying to say that, you know, there's cancel culture, everyone back then was getting canceled by today's culture, and, uh, you know, we should see them bad, but Darwin isn't seen as bad. Uh, could you, do, do you think that is the case? Do you think we should see Darwin as, as we should cancel Darwin, or whatever that means? Yeah, so the, the reason, so this is completely dealing with cancel culture is a little outside my field i do find it interesting <laughs> darwin has escaped that if i were to hypothesize about why this is it's when they pick their targets whenever cancel culture picks its targets from the historical narrative mm. they don't just shoot blindly at everyone who wrote something racist otherwise <laughs> you'd be shooting everywhere because mm -hmm. that was like i said that was the prevailing view and so yeah. nearly everyone just assumed it for the longest time this was just sort of the the intellectual culture you lived in, unfortunately. The reason I think they choose people like Thomas Jefferson, um, George Washington, um, Columbus, and these figures is because they're so central to the story of America's political history. Hmm. Um, and if you're going to rewrite the politics, rewrite how we see political history. Hmm. If you demonize certain figures in the past, you leave open the room to uh, re reinterpret history in a way that you think is more friendly towards whatever view mm. you want to propose. And that's true of cancel culture or any social movements. They'll reinterpret prior figures as, you know, figures who were heroes in one age will be considered villains in the next. Mm. So I think that's the reason why it's much more targeted mm. is Dar Darwin. It Darwin is just sort of, he's seen as a scientific figure. And there's also, a, a again, just this, just a hypothesis. There's this probably a desire to continue to be academically credible and to challenge Darwin for racist views, despite the fact that evolution is, in a lot of ways, besieged by a lot of attacks from a lot of sides, is to really put yourself on the side of ID theorists and young earth creationists, which is the exact <laughs> opposite of what people in cancel culture want to do. Yes. They don't want to be seen on the American right. They don't want to be seen as allies, um, helping them to dethrone Darwin. Yes. So that could possibly be another motivation. Mm. But again, this is outside my field. This is all speculation. <laughs> Appreciate your thoughts. That's very interesting. Uh, everyone share in the comments why I haven't been canceled. Okay. So let's see what we else we have here. That, you know, we want to uh, help man evolve to, to higher planes. Uh, and so she looked on that these sort of people back here, they're lower on the mental scale. She took Darwin's ideas. They shouldn't be allowed to have children or we, we, we should stop them from having children. And, and we need to protect humanity to, so humanity can evolve to higher planes. I mean, 
Planned Parenthood was basically founded by somebody who founded on Darwin's ideas. Even Hitler used Darwin's ideas in regard to the superior race and eliminating others that are, that are considered inferior. I mean, Darwin, his ideas have permeated the whole world. And, and if I can, I can say one thing here, we, we actually would say you shouldn't call Darwin's ideas a theory mm. because a theory means you have evidence to support it. Whereas we would say it's a belief. Mm -hmm. And in actual fact, the, way, the reason that Darwin is so protected, why is he so protected? Did you know in the 1900s, 1920s, the, the main biology book used in the public schools in America by a man called George Hunter actually taught eugenics, taught students that the Caucasians were the highest race, mm. all based on Darwin's ideas. And yet Darwin is protected. Why is that? I'll tell you why it is, Ali, because he's the high priest of their religion. He's the high priest of their religion. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, so that's, paganism, why, that's why he's not canceled. He's the high priest of their religion. Uh, yeah. So who is this religion they're talking about? So he calls it paganism, which is terrible, terrible. Paganism is sort of a group term for the non-religious beliefs that were more animistic, that propagated during usually the late Roman Empire and afterward into the Middle Ages. This was a sort of group term for the not so sort of older religions of Europe as Christianity spread through Europe. And of course, it, they maintain themselves. Even down to today, there, there are religions like Wiccanism mm -hmm. that are considered pagan. So it's a term we still use today. But virtually all of these things that actually qualifies paganism are not truly, are, are not, what he's talking about he's talking about secularism and perhaps agnosticism atheism mm. whatever you want to call it it's it's non-religious whereas paganism is very clearly religious it's very spiritual mm. and so i don't like that terminology there he uses it pejoratively because he knows he can get a reaction from christians mm. and, and it, th th this is the sort of rhetoric that i think is going on here which i think is really unfortunate i think we need to be very careful and precise in our terms and not just shoot broadly if we're going to make a cultural impact mm -hmm. We need to be better prepared and better equipped intellectually than, than our opponents are. Otherwise, we set ourselves up for really easy criticisms like that. Oh, you're just calling them pagans because, I mean, it's rhetorical. It's not even accurate. Hmm. Well, so he says yeah. that. Yeah, so he says this. There's a lot of points. I, I, the main ones I caught is Singer was um, justified her theories using Darwinism. I've addressed that already. Was, today, we recognize that those were abuses Christians, if you're going to do this, Christian Christianity was used for hundreds of years to justify colonialism and manifest destiny. So again, so we, we, we don't want to do special pleading. So if, if Darwinism is guilty of eugenics, Christianity <laughs> ought to be indicted for colonialism. And so I think I think Ken Ham does, hasn't really thought through the implications of what he's doing hmm. here. Then he says Hitler used Darwin's theories. He did. He very much did. Social Darwinism was still around. It was used for justification during the Gilded Era in the United States, which is late 1800s. Mm. Social Darwinism has been used for a lot of terrible purposes. But here's the thing with, with uh, Adolf Hitler. Now, I know he's a little bit after your time, but he was a pretty bad dude. Yes. He also used the church, and he also used Christianity. The majority church dur in Germany during the 1930s and 40s supported Hitler. And began writing texts about how Jesus was actually perhaps Nordic or Aryan in some sense. <laughs> and these are the top theologians of the world. The top theologians of the world came from Tübingen, which is a German university, which is what 
brought so much angst and consternation from people like Karl Barth, who got thrown out of Germany, mm. who's the greatest theologian of the 20th century, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who stayed in Germany, set up the Confessing Church, which is a small church that resisted uh, Adolf Hitler, and ultimately paid for it with his life, died in a concentration camp. Hmm. And, you know, his book, The Cost of Discipleship, is one of the greatest works of the 20th century. And yet those were the exceptions. Unfortunately, those were the exceptions. And so, again, if, if we're going to indict evolution because Hitler used it, well, are we going to indict? This is an argument about Hitler. Like, if Hitler used it, therefore it's evil. <laughs> Hitler used Christianity, therefore it's evil. No, we don't want to say that, right? Hitler also used evolution, therefore evolution. No, we don't want to say that, right? So, again, this is if you're going to if you're going to indict people for their abuse of evolution, you also have to indict Christianity for people's abuse of that. Mm. And that's just not fair. I think I think that that he's committing what's called special pleading. He's wanting to make an exception for Christianity, mm. but not make an exception for evolution. And I think that we should just be able to call out the abuses of all beliefs, whether or not we believe in them or not. Mm. And I think that's more intellectually honest way of approaching this stuff. Mm. So don't you think, though, that that evolution is is a religion to some people like maybe not pagan pagan just means you know not not christian according to Ginham, i guess but why, why is why is evolution not a religion so so what is a religion right religion is a really ill-defined term but most of the time religion ought to i think religion ought to be defined as any sort of comprehensive explanation of origins, purpose, meaning, goal. Like it, it's, it's sort of a worldview, but it's one that inclu includes some sort of spiritual, non-physical reality. Mm. That to me is what a religion is. It doesn't necessarily have to be God, but it's got to be in some sense, be spiritual, non-physical. It's got to point in some way mm. to that. The reason he can get away, I think, with calling evolution a religion is the fact that it oftentimes for a lot of people fulfills the first criterion which is it gives us a sense of origin, maybe even tells us where we're going. Uh, eugenicists used it for the, in that way, but it doesn't give us the second. And so Mary Midgley is a great philosopher. She was at Oxford. She passed away a few years ago. She wasn't a Christian, and she often indicted some of her fellow scientists for treating evolution as a religion. But I think her criticism was much more precise because she didn't say evolution itself is a religion. She's saying it can be used religiously. Hmm by giving people a sense of where I come from, where, and Darwin, or sorry, Darwin, Ken Ham basically equates the two. Hmm. He takes the, the rare instances where scientists do get semi-religious with it, uh, which does happen. Like it would be unfair to me to, again, I want to be fair. I want to be intellectually honest. This does happen where evolution will be used in a more religious, spiritual aspect. He doesn't separate that from the actual scientists themselves. The majority of scientists don't use it. It's just a scientific theory just as much as like Einstein's general relativity or quantum theory is. They don't use that as a religion. It's just an explanation of certain physical aspects of reality. And, and, and of course, so Ken Ham will selectively quote these scientists and pretend that they are the norm. They're the regular instance of this. And this is so that that evolution is really just a secret agenda. Whereas if you talk to any scientist, these scientists are usually considered outliers. So they're critiqued even by their atheist and agnostic friends for treating religion or sort of treating evolution in a way that goes beyond what the evidence says mm. by trying to import morals, import meaning, and these sorts of things out of that. Evolution doesn't tell you that. The, the, the evidence doesn't tell you that. The evolution, evolutionary theory only gets you certain facts. It doesn't give you anything that 
might be part of what I was defining as a religion. Mm. And so, yeah, again, evolution can be abused. And Ken Ham loves to point that out. But is that the norm? Is that usually how scientists treat that? No, no. And so the idea that Darwin is a high priest <laughs> of, of paganism mm. is, uh, again, it just comes across to me, who studied this for a long time and is a practicing Christian, conservative Christian, I, you know, orthodox by anyone's definition, I just can't, it, this just seems like an abuse of the scholarship. Mm. And, but it, it, it has a listening audience who doesn't understand this. And that's why I think, I think he can kind of get away with it to an mm. extent. Well, yeah. It, while I would appreciate that honor of being called a high priest, I'm not sure I want the connotations. So <laughs> when I'm, I'm trying to, you know, understand, uh, I think it comes down a lot of ways to um yeah th that that ham seems to portray there's the christians on one hand that are young earth creationists and then the evolutionists that are you know like just trying to do what they want they don't trust yeah. the bible uh, but obviously there's there's christians in the middle that believe in evolution and i i just have a hard time saying that you know th they're worshiping darwin the me the, the high there priest were unwitting pawns right in a in a pagan religion yeah which is kind yeah. of the implication yeah it's like 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 he says at the beginning of the video and i i just made a post on it it's he says that hey you know you you can be a christian and believe in evolution it won't be it'll be contradictory but you can do it and then then later he says but he you know he essentially applies that all of the evolutionists are worshiping a different religion and it's it's a little confusing, yeah. at least for me. Yeah. And I mean, so that's that's the quickest way. If you want to get Christians not to believe in evolution, what's the quickest way to do that? Mm. The quickest way, and it's, it, I wouldn't say it's the best way, mm -hmm. the quickest way would be to pose it as another religion. Because you can only have one. <laughs> or at least you ought to if you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, is the only way to salvation. Mm. If you have another religion that you somehow smuggled in, all of a sudden now you're seeing it as competition to Jesus Christ, right? So if you pose it as another religion, it doesn't matter how stretched you'd have to make the concept of religion or whatever, what have you, as soon as you get them sort of under the same umbrella, now all of a sudden you've forced conflict mm -hmm. and you force the Christian to decide one or the other. And of course they're going to pick mm -hmm. Jesus mm -hmm. over evolution. And this is the same mistake people like Jerry Coyne and Richard Dawkins do in a, in a slightly different way they also try to create this conflict thinking that people will actually choose the science over religion and what most evolutionary biologists and people commentators have noticed this has actually just made the problem worse because people will always choose the thing that makes that gives them meaning and purpose and value in life <laughs> over some abstract theory and science that doesn't impact them at all mm. and so this has been very harmful to christianity but it's also been very harmful to the biological sciences as mm -hmm. well and in a weird way, and here's my rhetoric, Ken mm -hmm. Ham is an ally of Richard Dawkins in creating this conflict. Mm. That is this that's false rhetoric. conflict. Yes. Mm. Very, very deep. Darwin's ideas. And yet Darwin is protected. Why is that? I'll tell you why it is, Ali, because he's the high priest of their religion. Do you know what Darwinian evolution? I'm just going to be blunt. I'm, I'm an Australian. I hope you can. I hope I still have that accent. Yes, but, you do. <laughs> um, I want to just say it bluntly. If you look at Darwin's motivation, what was he really trying to do? He wanted to come up 
with a way of explaining life without God by natural processes. Naturalism is atheism. What is Darwinian evolution millions of years? What is it in reality? It's really the pagan religion of the age to try to explain everything without God. Look at the public schools. They've struck. Okay. So please help me here. I don't remember happening th this whole thing. I don't remember this trying to prove evolution through this. Please help me understand what's going on here. Yeah. So what he's basically saying, he's kind of continuing on this point. It's the pagan religion of our age. Again, not defining paganism basically is using a sort of grandiose definition of anything that basically he thinks is anti-Christian and saying that it has become sort of the vehicle into school systems, into government, and to everything by which we can secularize. Now, I have to really challenge this point right here, because what Ken Ham is doing is he's making evolution, and he does this in a lot of his books. He makes evolution the basis, the foundation. He'll get into this in a bit. He makes it the foundation for every evil and anti-Christian force in the world. Why does he do that? Is it because people who study the genealogy of ideas and history, it's, is it because they are saying this, that evolution started the de-Christianization of the West? No, absolutely not. That happened, that started happening a hundred years before Darwin, and it really didn't uh, take off until 1950s. So it's not that. It's definitely not that. It's, if I were to speculate it's because it makes his organization seem super important. And again, this is just speculative, but why make evolution the cent to assume that evolution is the centerpiece from which all anti-Christian and de-Christianization is happening in the West? Because then it makes Answers in Genesis the savior of the West. Mm. And I mean, that's, that, that is the subtle implication there. Because that's, it's, it's obviously not true that evolution has become the vehicle for why prayer is taken out in school. That, that conversation never even happened. He talks about how it became a form of that evolution is naturalistic. That's definitely not true. I brought up um, Alfred Russell Wallace. Alfred Russell Wallace, it's kind of funny. When Darwin first proposed the theory of evolution, he still had a sort of vague belief in God. And in, in editions of The Origin of Species, his book, he even put a reference to God, that God planted the first uh, the first uh, or living organisms, mm. which then evolved outward. And this was, there was a whole idea during that time, a whole stream of what's called natural theology, this view of how do we view God and nature that saw that as actually proclaiming the glory of God, a, a world that could self-create, that can create new species on its own. That seems to bespeak the glory of God all the more. And Darwin is basically entering into that fray. And he very consciously knew that. So he didn't see the nat origin of species as somehow anti-theological no 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 not at all he saw it this big his big sort of hesitation was the fact that he knew very well it was theological to the point that some historians have called it the last work of british natural theology that hmm. it's a theological work because he's entering into these conversations of how god works in nature wow. and so ken ham just never acknowledges this fact that he was that that the origin of species was not seen as atheistic early on uh, there were a few commentators who did propose that. These were not influential. Most of the influential voices saw it as very clearly theological and very clearly having a portrait, portraying a portrait of God, but whether or not it was the right portrait of God. And that's why where the conversation happened. Mm. 
because theology and biology were so interconnected that they weren't split apart yet, no matter which side you were on. Okay, so uh, he it seems like he is saying that I, Charles Darwin, I was attempting to prove God wrong by proposing this view of evolution. Are you saying this is untrue? That is very, very untrue. There were some figures who wanted it to be that way. Huxley tended towards that. Alfred Russell Wallace tended towards that early on. But what's real interesting is a few years after he basically co-discovered natural selection with Darwin, he became adamantly theistic and saw and began to argue that natural selection, in a sense, proved uh, to an extent the existence of God. The co-discoverer of natural selection, the guy with equal right claim to the modern theory of evolution, in it later in his life, basically went from being an agnostic atheist to full-on theist, not a Christian, but a full-on theist, believing that ev biological evolution proved the existence of God. And these were conversations that were like actively going on here. But Darwin himself, you yourself, never said this. You mm. yourself never thought this. In fact, you had kept up active conversations with Asa Gray, the evangelical mm -hmm. Christian. And e Asa Gray was making similar arguments about how he saw evolution as evidence for design. And Darwin wrote, you wrote approvingly of this. You said you liked this ideas of teleology. Hmm. And let me let me let me throw in a little bombshell. Okay. I think the reason I can't prove this because it's spe it's speculative, it's subjective. Only you could. <laughs> the reason you did not become full on atheist is because of evolution. Here's here's my idea, and I, I'm wrestling with this, but I I think there's enough evidence to show this. Darwin, you thought God could not exist or God, you struggle with the existence of a God. You never thought that God could not exist, but you struggle with the existence of God because of the death of your daughter, not because of your discoveries of natural selection. So it wasn't evolution that made you doubt God's existence. It was the problem of evil. Problem of evil still exists with or without evolution. Your daughter still died. Creatures are still killing each other. What Asa Gray pointed out, your friend, the evangelical Christian who introduced Darwinism to America, very influential, he pointed out that if you believe in evolution, the problem of natural evil gets easier because then you see how a, how like all this seemingly chaotic death and destruction actually brings about a greater good. It brings about things like us. And so these evils can be turned into good. Now it gets a lot more complicated than that. I'm sure there's a million questions coming out of that, but ultimately out of these conversations, Darwin began to sort of back off his claims and back off seeing the evils of the world that somehow disproves. And he complimented Asa Gray often very, very much on saying this is a sort of views that he could begin to, you know, at least entertain on how God and the world could interact. And so these are very tantalizing pieces of evidence that suggest the reason Darwin never went further, the reason he always entertained the existence of God was because of natural selection and how it he saw it help with the problem of natural evil. And with the problem of evil that he experienced in his own life is that it gave it some sort of meaning and purpose if there was in fact a divine being which otherwise it wouldn't have had hmm. Hmm. so is it sounds like you're saying uh to make that argument you have to use evolution but it could point us to a god is that right 
it, it, it allowed Darwin, I, this is speculative, it allowed, I think it allowed Darwin to continue to at least be open to the existence of God. Hmm. I think natural selection, his own discoveries, allowed him to be open. I think this occurred through his conversations with Asa Gray. So that's what I'd say. I wouldn't say he thought it proved God's existence mm. or anything like that. No, no, no. I guess that makes sense. So when did he become, when did he stop being a Christian? When did he stop being a Christian? Yeah, I'm actually not 100% sure of the exact dates of this because there, it was a transitional period. Mm. Um, but it does seem that he, sometime before he really went public, he was about 50 or so, Sometime he really, before he went public is whenever he really stopped believing the central truths of Christianity, because hmm. this is after he's experienced so much of the suffering. Um, but he continued to entertain the idea of God, which is different, right? So it, it was a little bit, it was earlier um, in his life prior to his publication, hmm. but it doesn't seem to be related to, at least not necessarily related to the origin of species. And this is how Ken Ham, to get back to that video, he always poses it as that, Darwin wanted to publish the theory of natural selection, uh, of evolution by natural selection, to get rid of Christianity, to give a counter narrative. And Kinham's very subtly saying that the reason people believe in God is because of biological design, which was just not true. It was absolutely not true. Hmm. Um, there, there were some people very, it's kind of an oddity in the history of Christianity that people use design, biological design arguments as justification, as foundation for a belief. And, and even in Darwin's day, I mean, people talk about Paley, but that gets into a long conversation. I would say that not even in Paley's day was this considered a disproof of design. There's plenty of papers coming out after Darwin published The Origin of Species that actually celebrated it as furthering Paley's design argument, hmm. as actually being a better instantiation of it than a sort of uh, intelligent design idea. Hmm. So again, so again, it, these conversations get extremely complicated. They get into all twists and turns. And I kind of deviated from your question, which I apologize, is when did it happen? Very slowly over the course of his life. Um, uh, but before his 1859 publication, mm. he, he had already uh, pretty much given up tenets of the faith. Okay. And what, what about how uh, there's some reports that he that I was hesitant to publish The Origin of Species because I was afraid of the influence it could have on Christians doubting their faith? Yeah. I mean, I'd have to go back and look at those sources again. I mean, there definitely was some reluctance on his part because he wasn't sure how the church would respond. Um, Darwin wasn't well-versed, super well-versed in theology and those sorts of things. So he wasn't quite sure how the church would react. What he did know is that he was entering into theological conversations, which I kind of hinted at this. There was a debate in natural theology, how we can read God out of nature. One side said, we read God best out of nature, kind of like how Ken Ham does, by being God intervening and creating things that nature on its own could not produce. Obviously, these point to God. Other people of his day staunchly disagreed with that and thought that actually proved that God was deficient. Because if God made the universe, he would make it in a way where he wouldn't constantly have to tinker with it. If I build a car and I constantly have to tinker with it, and another mechanic builds a car and it has an auto repair system or something like that, that's he's obviously the or they're obviously the better mechanic than I am. Mm -hmm. And so they thought that a, a universe where God is consistently intervening to do things nature can't do proves that God is not perfect, 
proves that God has limits on his power. And so they think that the natural regulations of the world and its ability to produce and regulate things on its own was actually the best evidence that we had for God. So obviously, when you propose the theory of evolution by natural selection, mm. which side of the debate are you going to come in on? The second one. You're coming in and you're saying that there's this regular law, like the law of gravity or something like this, can ex which can explain biological diversity. And so Darwin was entering a theological conversation. And he was afraid, and it wasn't some backwater church conservative people who were saying something different. People all, this was a, a debate across the line. Darwin's biggest opponents were quite often very liberal Christians or even non-Christians who had different ideas about God. Uh, Louis Agassiz being one, Richard Owen being another. So the backlash that he was afraid of was the fact that this idea was very clearly theological. He was entering a natural theology debate and the fact that he would get pushed back from people who disagreed with him, both for biological and for theological reasons. And um, yeah, and what I like to point out is, is his fears, whatever his motivation is aside, how did the church actually react? The church was extraordinarily accepting, especially in England, it was extraordinarily accepting of Darwin's theories. They often became the biggest proponents of it, even while scientists were quite reluctant of it because there were actually quite a few problems that hadn't been worked out yet. Hmm. Interesting turn of events, because now the reverse is quite uh, often happened, is now churchgoers, mostly in the United States, have become very resistant to Darwin, where scientists have become, obviously, its biggest defenders. And so we're seeing a weird reversal at this point. Hmm. Hmm, that's very fascinating. Thank you for that. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the Judeo-Christian ethic used to permeate the culture in America, even the, the public schools, but that's gone now. And they've thrown God out, the Bible out, prayer out. Uh, creation out. So what are they teaching kids? That you explain the whole of life by natural processes. Naturalism is atheism. That's why Darwin is so protected, because Darwin's ideas are their so-called justification for atheism, and then the justification for their morality, or from a Christian perspective, immorality. In other words, if there's no God, it's like Judges 21, 25, when there's no king, no absolute authority, everyone does what is right in his own eyes. So we want to know what's happening in our culture today. You have generations that have been taught man's just an animal, there's no God, and we're a result of natural processes. Marriage is however you want to define it. Gender is however you want to define it. Abortion, get rid of spare cats, get rid of spare kids. What's the difference? You're just animals anyway. We have a right to do what we want with our own bodies. Uh, and uh, although a fertilized egg is not a part of a woman's body anyway, I mean, it's a different combination of information and, and uh, it's foreign tissue as far as the body is concerned, which is why the uterus has an anti-rejection drug uh, mechanism to enable it to, mm. to uh, implant and so on. But my point is, once you abandon a foundation in an absolute authority, anything goes except the absolutes of Christianity. Because in a culture where anything goes, what can't go, are the absolutes of Christianity that say, here's what's right and here's what's wrong based on God's word. Mm -hmm. And I just want to lay out, because at one time I wrote out this connection 
between, because there are so many setting connections between Margaret Sanger, who started Planned Parenthood, who was an open eugenicist. She didn't mm-hmm. hide that until it started getting, um, people started pushing back on the ideas and, you know, the uh, mid-century, the idea of after World War II of eugenics being what drove the Nazis. And so then she kind of had a PR crisis and she had to switch her methods, but she was an open eugenicist. And the connection is really stunning because she had to move to Britain because she was standing trial in the United States for some of the ideas that she was pushing. If you if you give, give me a chance, uh, if you allow me to, I'd like to just give one comment to the idea that he just threw out all these ethical things that are apparently, you know, come from okay, Darwinism. Yeah, I, I, I think you're off the hook here because those sorts of ideas and those sorts of trajectories have very little, if you look at the history of idea, have very little to do with Darwinism. Darwinism, sometimes it comes in as justification for them, but very rarely is like the abortion debate tied to evolution. He makes these sort of grandiose genealogical claims, which anyone who studies the history of idea does not take seriously. And this is the problem that I have is sometimes people will hear Ken Ham and think that he'll throw out these grand claims about history but he never backs them up. And that's because there aren't uh, good scholarship. My mic's really struggling. Mm. There isn't any good scholars who think what he's saying is true, at least none that I've ever come in contact with. Mm. Um, And at the same end of the day, his reasoning is pretty flawed. Okay, we came... We came from uh, monkeys, therefore we're just animals. Well, in in the traditional Christian narrative, we came from dirt. (laughs) Which one's better? You know? So, like, the idea... It's called a genetic fallacy. And so I've, I mean, I'd love for him to see high-profile ethical thinkers who say because we came from monkeys or because we came from uh, ape-like ant- or ape ancestors, that therefore you know we can act like them or ethics is relative. That's just that that's not a thing. That really isn't a thing. He makes this up. He makes up this narrative again to make evolution the sort of evil that is the source of every bad anti-Christian thing in culture, which is just, it just isn't true. Mm. It really is not true. And she joined the Malthusian League. The Malthusian League was based on Thomas Malthus. Thomas Malthus Mm. was the guy in the 18th century, I believe, who believed that we had this overpopulation Mm -hmm. crisis that, you know, all of the resources were going to be taken over and we really needed to reduce the birth rate and make sure that there were fewer people. While he inspired Darwin... Uh, about a century mm-hmm. later and darwin as you said he based it on a belief mm-hmm. and a false belief so a uh, quick question did did darwin was he influenced by this malthusian guy yeah he was um when you talk about malthus right yes you were influenced by malthus malthusian ideas really did impact you because basically thomas malthus was very terrified Thomas Malthus uh, was very terrified that London and England and basically human society was going to eat itself into a population crisis. He thought there was only a limited amount of resources, basically this amount of resources, and the population was doing this. And you still hear this today. You still hear people who wanting to call the population because the population is always going up. But resource management has always been able to adapt and improve that because Malthus has been able to warn us about these sorts of things. Were we not intelligent, rational beings who could react and thus uh, form better farming methods and these sorts of things, um, transportation methods to get food to impoverished areas, we would have these sorts of problems in places like, you know, when there was a fear of this whenever the Ukraine war started, that the grain would get shut down and cause mass starvation because the pop, now the resources were below what the population needed. 
So it's just pretending like Malthus was just completely wrong is, is false. Malthus warned us and we reacted accordingly. But what's really interesting is she just says, oh, Malthus is wrong because in human culture, because Malthus only was talking about human population growth. The way you used it was for other creatures who don't implement farming strategies, who don't rationally plan out how to meet population needs with food. And yes, competition is a real thing. There is limited, there are limited amount of resources for a species and the population quite often will outgrow its ability, creating competition where only the, the strongest or most fit, I should say, survive. And so, yes, you were influenced by Malthus in the best possible way, in a way that's universally accepted, even by Kin Ham. Kin Ham does not deny the principle of natural selection. He thinks it's real. That's how he explains all the different polar bears, or all the different bear species between polar bears and black bears and grizzly bears. He thinks there's one original bear kind. He uses the word kind, calls it barhamen, you know, from the uh, Hebrew word. And he thinks it diversified due to natural selection. So why that she's criticizing Malthus here, when very clearly, even the person sitting across from her can recognize that Darwin's usage of Malthus gained, was correct and gained in our understanding of how species diversify. I don't know why. Mm. So it's just, it's a weird criticism to yeah. me. You hear that, Ma? Kenham agrees with me on something. That is, that is so, <laughs> so exciting. Well, what? What's really interesting is that Kinham's faith in your principle of natural selection exceeds even what most biologists believe. Now, what I mean by that is he thinks that in the past about 4,000, about 4,200 years, every single bear species on earth, including probably pandas and uh, sun bears, polar bears, 4,200 years were able to diversify from a two pairs on the arc. That is a speciation rate. That is a diversification rate so extreme that I don't know biologists who really take this seriously, that a species in 4,000 years can essentially do this and actually be less than that because we have records of these species going back for thousands of years. We know they existed. And so creatures being able to basically an original bear kind basically being able to evolve into a panda bear, a polar bear, a black bear, a grizzly bear very, very quickly. That's hyper evolution. That's hyper evolutionary. And so I think it's quite funny that you and Ken Ham up to a certain point are actually good friends. Now, of course he limits it, right? He thinks that eventually that he, that eventually it'll hit a brick, you know, a brick wall because of the amount of uh, variety within the genetic code. But that's, you know, you know, I, I find that questionable, but I do think it's funny how powerful he thinks your mechanism is, at least in the short term. Mm, that's, yeah, that's very fascinating. The Malthusian catastrophe has now mathematically been disproven many, many times throughout history. It's not true that human beings just take up all the resources and that we are overwhelming the earth with our presence. But he based it on that belief. He liked what Thomas Malthus had to say. He came up with this idea of natural selection. And as you said, that then inspired people like Margaret Sanger, Sir uh, I think it was Francis Galton was his name mm -hmm. who came up with this idea. He was of, a eugenicist. Yes, he, he was, was a eugenicist. Darwin's cousin, I He believe. was his yeah. cousin who also inspired Margaret Sanger. And so the connections are all there. Yeah, that's very fascinating because you were saying that, you know, Kinham believes in natural selection and she's kind of like hating on natural selection right there. <laughs> so, 
That's fascinating. Yeah. Very fascinating to me. Uh, yeah, you kind of went all over through that. Is there anything else you wanted to say there before we keep going? Nothing more than the fact that Ken Ham's face, I think, said it all. He just kind of let her talk because in the back of his head, he's probably thinking, I better be careful what I say because I actually don't think that the usage of Malthus is bad because it's central to his ideas just as much as it is central to your ideas. That competition, because you need that sort of competition to very rapidly create white, you know, to select for uh, white polar bear fur so that polar bears can form in larger size because the larger the size, the easier it is for creatures to keep warm, et cetera, like that. So you think, so he's like in his head going, yeah, I actually think Malthus had probably had this right. That's my speculation about Ken Ham right there, which is why he's keeping very silent. Point. The consequential ideas after that are all based on a presupposition about the world and how it was created. He didn't come up with this because, you know, he put it to test and he had evidence for it, as you said. I think it's so important for people to recognize that. All right. Did Charles Darwin have any, any evidence at all for the arguments he was making about evolution? So it developed over time. Your, your ideas developed over time, which is why uh, the, between the voyage of the Beagle and the actual publication of The Origin of Species, many, many, many years went by because you wanted to develop the most robust argument that you could for the fe for the case that speak that this actually was occurring in the world and so a lot of it was speculative at the time and the evidence for it has since grown quite rapidly but at the time it was merely proposing a hypothesis to explain various features of the world in a very succinct manner darwin's finches are, are a clear illustration of this different food sources creating competition for the limited food supply the ones that the, the, the birds with the right beak shape, the right beak structure to be able to eat this food were the ones that were able to not starve to death. So this seems like a very straightforward principle, but at the time, how do you prove that? And so Darwin began to collect evidence from around the world. And what's interesting is because of, um, because of Alfred Russell Wallace's journeys in Malaysia, the Malay, uh, uh, the Malay uh, islands out there, he actually was able to gather evidence from another side of the world as well. And some of that evidence was actually a lot better than Darwin's. And because he was he was a field collector, he had thousands of these specimens to be able to show how species uh, through competition seem to be adapting to different uh, environments. So a lot of this was it's, it's you looking at empirical evidence, you create what's it, Darwin is really a pioneer of what's called the hypothetical deductive method. Basically, you get a bunch of evidence, you come up with a hypothesis that can account for this create predictions, and then you put those predictions to the test. And the more that it confirms, the more likely your hypothesis is for being correct. It's contrasted with earlier, more purely inductive methods where you just go out and observe and you just record details. You don't actually use your rational mind at all. You don't try to create hypotheses so much. And so Darwin was really a pioneer in this way and assumed it and really showed the value of that. And so I, I obviously think that he did have evidence for this sort of competition going around because he created the hypothesis. And then over the preceding decades, he was able to show how that was able to explain so many features of the world in a way that competing hypotheses could not explain. Hmm. Yeah, so I guess in some ways he came up with the hypothesis. I came up with the hypothesis and then, you know, I try to prove that. But that's no different than a lot of times in, you know, when we read the Bible, we, we come up with a view that seemed that it could be right. right. And then we, we look for more evidence. Yeah. Oh, yes, there's more evidence here and here. And then we'll, we'll, come, we'll collect together. I think what Ali Bastuk is saying is that there's no evidence as in 
no evidence from animals changing from birds to fish or something like that. Yeah. But but if there was evidence of that, that would actually disprove Darwinism because that's actually a view called saltation. This idea of rapid evolution to go from a fish to a bird or something like that is actually a view that was competed uh, with Darwinism in the early part of the 20th century. It was proposed as a replacement to Darwinism. And so she's saying, well, we don't see this evidence of this large-scale evolutionary change. Uh, observable. Ken Ham likes to make the difference between historical sciences and observable sciences. But the problem is, is that if we did have that observable evidence, that would be a disproof of Darwinism. It wouldn't be proof of it. It would prove saltationism, which is this competing explanatory paradigm. But I like your, I really do like your Bible illustration because that's, I teach theology and that's what we do in systematics. We take a framework. Let's say we want to be a Calvinist. Let's just pick on Calvinism for a second. We take certain verses, say Romans 9, and we say, this is who, how we think God works when it comes to election, when it comes to the church, when it comes to salvation, etc. Then when we come to other verses, say in like Hebrews chapter 6, which seem to perhaps not fit with that paradigm, we can interpret it in a way that can allow it to fit, right? Because we have what we feel like is overwhelming evidence over here for this happening. And then we get to go to other verses and it fits that paradigm and explains that and can even in these cases allow us to reinterpret and see different verses in different light because they have the evidence over here. And that's what we do in systematic theology all the time. We have to, we have to find a cohesive view. And when there's competing interpretations, it's the system that we bring to it, the hypothesis that we bring to it that allows us to see all the different empirical bits of evidence, in this case, scripture, in a holistic light. And that's exactly what Darwinism does. It, it, it sees all these little bits and pieces, forms a theory, goes out and sees, does this fit with other biological organisms in the same way the systematician, the biblical systematician, goes out and looks at other scriptures and says, does this make sense of these scriptural verses? So I think the parallel you make is actually really interesting and really good, right? So if you're going to critique that, you might as well critique the biblical uh, uh, systematic uh, theologians. Yes, well, you know, I, I wasn't, I was a Christian at one point, so I still got some of that, right? <laughs> That's true. That yeah. is true. Yeah, so I... Of course, the irony, once again, Ali Beth Ducky, she seems to be equating natural selection with evolution. as, And she's like saying that there's no evidence for, I guess, natural selection. It seems like that's what she's saying there. She hasn't described any other yeah. kind of evolution. So I, I... it is weird. It is weird. I mean, she's Ducky's not a uh, she's not a biologist and I, I don't expect her to be. Which but I do find it. And I just think this is why uh, Ham kind of redirects the conversation afterward is he doesn't agree with her critiques of natural selection, at least not fundamentally. Mm. Fundamentally, obviously, he's on board with that. Um, so it does come across a little unusual. Mm. I agree. Interesting. Okay, last little bit here. Uh, you know, you mentioned Francis Galton there. Um, you know what's interesting about that? It, it's sort of a little aside, but it relates to what we are saying earlier. He was one of the ones that was able to get Darwin buried in Westminster Abbey. Mm-hmm. And the reason he wanted Darwin buried in Westminster Abbey is he wanted people to see the church honoring Darwin because he knew that would help undermine the church mm. because Darwin's ideas undermined the authority of Scripture. And the interesting thing is Darwin is buried in the foundation of the church. He's in the floor. Mm. When I, I'd been over in Westminster Abbey, first time I was looking for uh, Darwin's grave and, and then I found it. It's in the floor. And I thought, interesting. 
Very uh, interesting. Some, because if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Psalm 11.3. So a man mm. who popularized a philosophy to undermine and destroy the foundations of the church is honored by the church and buried in the foundation of the church. And you think of what's happening today, many Christian leaders and people in the church have accepted Darwin's ideas, reinterpreted Genesis, undermining the authority of scripture, undermining the foundational history that's foundational to all of our doctrine, morality, our worldview, everything. And we're seeing now a church today that's very lukewarm. We're seeing catastrophic generational loss from the church. And now we're seeing that those who are Christians are considered the enemy, or even those who are conservative, which really hold to Christian values, uh, considered the enemy as moral relativism really takes over the culture. Okay, I wanted to watch all that there, just get, get his point out. But question yeah. for you, so yeah, time. so uh, I, I need to understand this. So are you, Ken Ham is saying that there's this guy, what is it, my, my cousin, that he buried me after I'm dead, and he puts me in a church. I'm not even Christian. Why would he put me in a church? Yeah, why would he? It's a weird thing. Before I let this pass, though, there was a thing that Ham said at the end, which is moral relativism is taking over the culture, which is just demonstrably false. People are more concerned. Cancel culture. He brought that up. This was started. People are more concerned about racism, sexism, bigotry today than they ever have been. It's not moral relativism. It's just a different morality. And so he's just wrong from the get-go in even his categories. And I just wanted to bring that up. But to get to this, you know, it's not just wrong on his history of ideas. He's wrong when it comes to what your cousin did whenever he buried you. Francis Galton, he, along with Thomas Henry Huxley, did petition the church to bury you. And Huxley especially was uh, especially hostile to what he saw as Christian intrusions into the sciences. Now, the reasoning for wanting to get you buried in a church is this was not just any church. Everyone was buried essentially in a churchyard back then. So it wasn't just about getting buried in a church. It was about getting buried in Westminster. Westminster Abbey. Have you ever been there by chance? Oh, Darwin, you missed out. Westminster <laughs> Abbey. Well, I guess you were. Yeah. After you that is the place where every great British person is buried. So it was about an honor. It was honorific to be buried there. And so like tons of people are buried there since then you know, questionable relationships to the church. But this is where key, all the kings and queens this is uh, are buried. So to be buried there is to is is less, it's about, oh, he's a Christian. We're trying to, you know, anything to do with Christianity. And it's more about, are you a great British person? That's essentially what Westminster Abbey represents. It's where they do the coronations and stuff. Part of the coronations are there, you know. So it, 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 it's more than that, right? It, it's far more than that. And to get him buried there was a recognition that he was a major figure. Now, there was also, also the Christian element because they did, it does, did seem like they wanted to, to form rapprochement with, to, to form a reconciliation with the church to some extent. This wasn't a hostile attempt to undermine the church. It was an attempt to reconcile with it and it wasn't a covert action it's like oh we'll get evolution accepted he reads that into the history which just isn't there darwin he paints darwin as like trying to undermine the church i challenge ken ham to find that in darwin's literature where he says i am portraying this as an attempt to undermine the church and undermine christianity it's not there and even huxley who was 
quite hostile to the church, was only hostile so much to the extent that they interfered with what he saw with science. He wasn't just hostile to Christianity in general. And there were some, and he tried to like create some sort of scientific stuff, like as replacements for this. That's a, a side issue. Um, the point is, is that their goal in doing this was to honor Darwin, get him recognized as a major figure, and hopefully, uh, hopefully have this as a sort of internal representation that the faith, major faith of the day, wasn't really hostile to Darwin's. And what I find interesting is, is what Ken Ham completely overlooked is, how did Christians react to that? The church figures were like, yeah, definitely. Yeah, completely. It, there was doesn't seem to be much opposition to burying him there, even though he wasn't a Christian. Even though you weren't a Christian, you still got in. And it was because, as I've noted, most church figures were either on board or, or kind of neutral to Darwinism at this point. They just, it was just, it just, the conflict that we think that bubbled up post 1950s, 1920s, this being 1950s is when it really took off in America, just did not exist in Britain at this time. So Ken Ham is reading this 21st century, this 20, late 20th and uh, early 21st century conflict that has been brewing and, and uh, ongoing. He's reading that back into Victorian era England. And it's just, it's just an inaccurate reading of history. And this is why he paints them as trying to undermine the church, these evil agents, you know, bearing him in the foundation to undermine the foundation. It's the subtle symbolic imagery that he's trying to paint there. It, it, it's just, it's, it's historically completely inaccurate. I'm trying to, I'm really, really trying to understand this. So my cousin, he, he, he Ken Ham thinks that he tried to bury me there symbolically, like somehow the symbol, symbolism is going to affect how, you know, Christianity is destroyed somehow. I don't, I don't see how that follows. It just doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. And, He's trying to create a narrative that just isn't there. So, you know, get him buried in. So so what Kenham basically does is he reads his own sort of contrived view into this, which is that Galton and Huxley were secretly conniving to try and get Darwin acknowledged as part of the church so that he that the, the views of evolution could later undermine it, which he thinks it succeeded, right? So he thinks that, you know, that's this is why he brings up Galton. One, I think, to take the conversation away from natural selection because he agrees with natural selection. Um, so he's actually disagreeing with his host there. And two, because he wants to, he wants to sort of continue to forward this narrative of evolution as a sort of secret agent that's infiltrated the church and thus created the great exodus from the church today. And it, it, it really is funny that the views that he's forwarding as sort of like this, that, that came out of evolution. Again, I just can't say this enough. They show the evidence like, prove that this is a reality because i've read the historians I, i've read all of this stuff and it's just not there there the the history of why the church is declining is bigger than darwin it's much bigger darwin is one figure but he's not even a major figure i'd say there's a lot of other reasons for why the church is declining in the west and ken ham wants to just take this reductionistic account where everything's darwin's fault and therefore he answers in genesis and like organizations are thus the antidote to uh, all of america's religious woes okay all right last question for you uh, when i was on my deathbed did i become a christian well i mean it would have been a pretty recent memory for you why don't you tell no, me oh, no, I'm <laughs> see i told you it's been a long time 
Yeah, that's true. It's true. You had a long sleep between now and then. Uh, the the short answer is no. Uh, there was a um a lady named I think her name was like Lady Hope or something something like that. Apologies for that I'm, I'm spacing, but basically this was a story that was forwarded by her that Darwin had this deathbed conversion. He saw what his theory was doing, and he said, "Oh, you know, I repent. I regret ever having done." It. So it's not just a deathbed conversion; it's a sort of deathbed denial of evolution. And obviously, when you have a story like this, newspapers are going to print it. Newspapers are going to print it because it's sensational. It's big, you know, and don't mind checking the evidence or whether or not what she's saying is true. You know, like this is like a hot topic that a lot of people are going to to read. And so it created this myth that this is what actually happened. Now, did it? How reliable is she? Well, what did his kids have to say? Because surely his family would know if he, on his deathbed, converted to Christianity. And according to both his daughter and his son Francis, no, he didn't have a deathbed conversion that they accused her of completely making up the story. Which, the more you dive into this history, the more her account becomes really, really suspicious. And with all the contrary witnesses uh, to the like, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense, which is why most historians, in fact, as far as I know, all historians don't really take this account to be a real account. They don't think Darwin had a deathbed conversion, that this is a sort of myth that was created later. Yeah, that's really, really fascinating. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Mr. Hart. I, I've learned so much about myself. And... Uh, you should, everybody should go check out your podcast. Uh, the link will be in the description. They talk about all kinds of great stuff, theology, science. They talk about Bigfoot and aliens and <laughs> all this really, really great paranormal stuff. It's it's really exciting for me. Uh, we didn't have that evidence back then. But it's it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, any last words? No, yeah. Thank you for plugging my podcast. It's the uh, Spiritually Incorrect, and you can check it out at spirituallyincorrectpodcast.com. Awesome. All right. What a, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on, and I hope you have a great rest of your night. It's great meeting you, Mr. Uh, Darwin. Yes. Pleasure is mine.